Hey, I'm going to read the scripture for today. It comes from the book of Matthew, uh, verses, uh, chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. Uh, it'll be on the screens uh, to your left and to your right. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of, of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Last week was one of the most important weeks we had at Renaissance. Um, it was a week where we talked about our plan and our vision to see Harlem actually transformed by the power of the gospel. Uh, one of the first steps to see that happen is uh, where we are right here, that is in this school. And we were so fortunate to have Principal DeBerry come and be a part of our service last week and to share with us how Renaissance uh, could meaningfully be a part of uh, seeing PS76 transformed and what that does to the neighborhood when the local schools uh, are thriving, when the local schools are, are cared about, um, and, and just what role Renaissance could play in that in that part. Now, we made a, a pretty big ask. We said, listen, we want to raise uh, next month, uh, we're going to do an offering on April 23rd, and we want to raise $25,000, and we can be really bold about it because not one penny of that $25,000 is coming to Renaissance. It's not coming to me. We're kicking all of it immediately out the door. Uh, and 10000 of that we wanted to give to, uh, to the school so that they can outfit their kindergarten classrooms with these coding robots. And how amazing would that be if our kids here were learning coding in kindergarten? Wouldn't that be incredible? Um, this past week, I've had uh, so many unprompted conversations with so many of you uh, that have said, yo, Jordan, we are super excited about everything that's going on with Renaissance, and we're in. We're in with our money, we're in with our time, we're in with our talent, and uh, it is a privilege and an honor for me to be the pastor of this church to, to see your generosity, to see your heart. Now, the remaining part of that 25000 that's going out our doors, uh, one piece is going to Hope for New York and some of the organizations that work with them, like Young Life, for example, to see kids, mentor, there we go, shout out to Young Life. Um, and an organization like Safe Families. Now, what Safe Families does is they partner churches and individuals in churches with families that are in crisis, that are going through uh, the family court system and the foster care process. And the goal is always to reunify families together. And they bring around Safe Families, uh, like some of you guys in this room, to come around a family that is hurting, to see that family built back strong together. And we are so excited to see how Renaissance will be the hands and the feet loving people like Jesus in this neighborhood. Now, as incredible as you guys are, and you guys are extremely incredible, uh, I am not delusional to think that Renaissance can do this alone. And that brings in the last part of what we want to do. Uh, Renaissance is a church plant. Uh, we started three years ago in my living room. And uh, by the grace of God and by the generosity of people outside of our church, we were able to gather resources and people so that we can be our own church that is now thriving in Harlem. Now, we never just wanted to be a church plant. We want to be a church planting church plant. And what that means is we want to bless uh, people who we feel are passionate, godly leaders in this that love their neighborhoods 
that can see more good things continue to happen, that the kingdom of God can continue to, uh, to grow and people will be loved and dignified. And, and that brings me to today. Um, what we want to see happen uh, in this neighborhood is not just Renaissance, but it's a collaboration of churches coming together to seek the good and the thriving of Harlem. Now, my little brother Kenneth Hart is planting a church called The Gathering. It's hoping to launch in September. Give it up for him. Kenny, come on up. Kenny's going to bring the word today, uh, and I just want to pray for him before uh, he comes up. Uh, Kenny, is, he's, he's great. You guys are going to really love this. Heavenly Father, uh, I'm grateful for my brother. I'm grateful for his passion. I'm grateful for all of the things that you've already given him. God, I pray that uh, he would bless us as we hear your word today. You would give us ears to hear, and God, that you would um, just give us all the encouragement that we need uh, to do the things you have called us to do. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Man, what's good, Renaissance? Ah, so I, I see I don't have to tell y'all like I have to tell a first service to talk to your boy. I'm a chocolate preacher, so I need the encouragement. I got some insecurity issues. So y'all talk to me today, all right? Well, listen, it's an honor and a privilege to be standing here this day sharing God's word with you. Um... As Jordan said, I'm a church planner here in Harlem, and I'm also a first cousin of this house. Uh, me and my wife, Shanika, have followed this church's growth from day one. And by the way, y'all are smashing it. Like, this is not normal, all these beautiful faces, two services, two years. Like, y'all setting the bar real high, Renaissance. So thanks for that. But let me just say this, because I know he'll never say it. You guys have one of the most kingdom-minded pastors I have ever met. As a matter of fact, all of your pastors are killing it. Can we give them all some love? Yeah. Yeah. So listen, I'm a born and bred Harlemite, which means my chopped cheese game is strong. Yes. Yes. It also means I'm a diehard Nick fan, which has really improved my prayer life. Yeah. But, I'm, but, 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 but aside from me, right, I, I, I'm excited to be here today, get the opportunity to talk to you about living a life empowered and inspired by God's kingdom. Now, as Americans, we really don't have a good framework for the word kingdom, do we? But I think that the best description today that I can offer you of God's kingdom is this. God's kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule. Now, it's important to realize that the Bible teaches that we all find ourselves living as people in a place under a rule, which means we're all in a kingdom. The question really isn't, are we in a kingdom, but whose kingdom are we in? Which is why I believe that in order for us to see the gospel transform Harlem, and in order for us to see God's kingdom transform Harlem, we must first become people transformed by the gospel. See, I believe that the greatest problem in the American church today is that we've lost our vision of God's radical kingdom. We've lost our vision of being citizens of another world. See, we've been racialized, individualized, and politicized. And in the process, Jesus' radical kingdom vision has been decentralized from our collective consciousness. Now, the context of Matthew 9 is very important for us today because it's going to frame what we talk about. 
In this chapter, we encounter a Jesus that heals the blind, that raises a dead little girl, that completely heals a woman who was hemorrhaging for 12 years because she just touched the bottom of his, you know, his outfit, which, by the way, tells you Jesus' swag was on a trillion, right? Like, like even his clothes got power saved, but, we, but that's, another, that's another sermon. At the same time, though, as all this is happening... In chapter 9, Jesus is eating and drinking with some ratchet folk. He's disrupting the status quo, right? And he's finding himself constantly in awkward theological debates with the Jewish religious leaders. So Jesus' life is pretty crazy right now, Renaissance. Jesus went from having 12 followers to the Discover page on Instagram. 12 followers. Y'all get that on the way home. And with all of that happening, Matthew doesn't want the reader to misunderstand the point of Jesus' activities. See, Jesus wasn't just a powerful man doing powerful things, nor was he just a loving person treating everybody with inclusivity. No, 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 no. Jesus was on a mission, on a mission to establish an alternative way of being human. Jesus was on a mission that would drive him head on in a collision course with liberal Rome and with conservative Israel. Oh, y'all not going to help me preach. So I want to tag today's text with the title, Kingdom Work Ain't No 9 to 5. Kingdom Work Ain't No 9 to 5. You don't punch in and punch out of the kingdom. And I want to explain that theme in three ways. First, the message of the kingdom. Second, the ministry of the kingdom. And third, the multiplication of the kingdom. So first, the message of the kingdom. Look with me at verse 35. It says, And Jesus went to all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. Renaissance, I love this verse. I love it. Because first of all, look at the scope of Jesus' message. His message took him to every city and every village. Did you catch that? In other words, the good news about the kingdom took Jesus to the hood and to the burbs. It took Jesus to the fashion centers and the farmlands. It took him to the progressive cities and the conservative countryside. Okay, y'all still not with me. Okay, Jesus' mission took him to the red states and the blue states in Israel. All right, there we go. Now, this is important for us because in a room this diverse, there's some of us who come from all ends of the spectrum. I am a Harlemite. I am a New Yorker through and through, so I love the city. But, but others of us might come from a more quiet place, and we might love the country. Some of us are lost without noise, like me. I need the fire trucks and the, and the, and the ambulance going by. Like, I need that. But others of us are at home in the quiet. All we need is some crickets, and we're good. But the point for all of us today, is if we're going to be God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, then we must take seriously the universality of God's message. Because Jesus didn't view the cities as too liberal for his love, nor did he view the countryside as too conservative for his commission. Jesus was an equal opportunity savior. Second, let's look at the location of Jesus' message. Once Jesus was on the ground in a particular place, he localized his mission. Where? Where did he take his message? 
to the synagogue. Now, the synagogue was the center of Jewish religious life and culture. It was the place where community values were formed. It was the place where socialization into what it meant to be Jewish happened. It was the place where people heard stories of God's past, God's present, and God's future deliverance of his people. Amen? But it's also a place during this time that has lost its prophetic voice. What do I mean? Well, during the times of Jesus, the synagogue had become a politicized place, a place where the prophets don't have a voice, but the Pharisees do. By the way, this is the reason why John the Baptist had church in the wild. Yeah, yeah. Oh, y'all need to tell Jay and Yeezy. Oh, y'all didn't know that? Y'all need to tell Jay and Yeezy. Church been happening in the wild. Church was happening in the wild 2,000 years ago. See, John the Baptist is having church in the wilderness because he speaks truth both to religious and political power. His message of justice and repentance isn't welcomed in the synagogue, so he hits the streets. But the synagogues have also become a place of privatized faith at this time. Oh, we don't know nothing about privatized faith communities at this time, do we? The synagogues have become a place where personal piety overshadows God's demand for public faith. A place where theological debates replace practical love. But you're looking at me crazy, so let me give you an example. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand in the synagogue. And as he does this, the religious leaders come up to him and question his holiness. You know why? Because he did it on the Sabbath. Theological debates replacing practical love. We don't know nothing about that in the 21st century church community, do we? In the community of faith, do we? But the point in all of this is that Jesus' choice to teach in the synagogues is profoundly important for us today. You know why, Renaissance? Because as impotent, inept, and individualized as the synagogues in Israel are at this time, Jesus still doesn't buy into the popular belief that we have today that you can love God but not love his people. real quiet there. (laughs) Yes, family, synagogue folk, like church folk, are a hot mess. (laughs) Oh, y'all a hot mess. You ain't fooling me. I pastor y'all. Y'all a hot mess. But so am I. But Jesus doesn't see his mission as replacing the synagogue, but rather as reforming the synagogue. Jesus doesn't see institutional religion as unnecessary but rather as unfaithful. And there's a big difference. In other words, Jesus won't let you get away claiming today that you love him but hate his church. But third, look at the content of Jesus' message. The text says Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and what? And proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. What is this gospel of the kingdom that Jesus preaches everywhere he goes. Well, the Gospel of Luke gives us a good glimpse into what this gospel of the kingdom might have sound like. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes back to the hood. He goes back to Nazareth. Now, the reason why I call Nazareth the hood is, one, I'm the hood pastor, but two, <laughs> but two, when, Nazareth, when, when Nathaniel hears that Jesus is from Nazareth, what's the first thing he says? Can anything good come from there? That sounds like the hood to me. I don't know about y'all. So Jesus goes back to the hood, and he visits the synagogue in his hometown. And while there, he decides to stand up and read the word of God. 
He's in the synagogue proclaiming a message, right? He's handed a scroll by somebody. Now, y'all know before there was, uh, you know, before they, these, these books like this didn't exist, so they were scrolls. So he gets a scroll, and Jesus rolls it down, and he scrolls down, and, and he gets down until he finds the book of Isaiah. And then, and then he scrolls down some more until he finds Isaiah 61, and then he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners. In recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolls up the scroll, sits down, and says to the people, today this scripture is fulfilled in your presence. See, before there was a mic drop, scroll drop. Because <laughs> if there was ever a scroll drop moment, that was a scroll drop moment. See, family, the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus preached wasn't a triumphalist message about Christians taking over the world. No, 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 no. It was a transformative message about how God was becoming king in Jesus and establishing a people that would preach good news to the poor, meet the practical needs of the hurting, and set the oppressed free from systemic bondage. Oh, but y'all not going to have me preach today. So when Jesus preaches the kingdom of God, he's preaching a narrative, a narrative arc, a story of salvation, liberation, and reconciliation in which he is at the center as king. Which means that the kingdom of God is not just a future hope, it's a present reality. You know why it's a present reality? Because the king has come. It's present. It's here. In other words, if you're a Christian today, your true citizenship isn't in the government that birthed you, but in the kingdom that rebirthed you. Well, that leads me to my second point the ministry of the kingdom. Now, as important as it is to preach the message of the kingdom, it's critical to understand that the kingdom doesn't come in preaching alone. And I'm a preacher telling you that. Look with me at the text. Verse 35, it says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and what? Healing every disease and every affliction. Ooh, I love this. Because after Jesus preached, Jesus practiced. Oh, Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, and then he demonstrated the gospel of the kingdom. In other words, Jesus heals every disease and every affliction that's around him. See, what we're doing today is important, but it's incomplete. I hope we know that today, Renaissance Church. Jesus showed us that kingdom mission must take us out the four walls of the church and into touching the hurt and hopelessness in our community. I love this truth. You know why? Because it means that Harlem will not be transformed by the quality of our sermons. Mm-mm. Harlem will not be transformed by the, by the efficiency of our Sunday services. Harlem will not even be transformed by the beastliness of our worship. And worship was beastly today. Don't get it twisted. But rather, Harlem will be transformed by, by people who've been liberated by the power of Jesus and who go out into the community to do the same for somebody else. See, family, kingdom ministry always touches a community where it's hurting most. That's what Jesus did in his day. That's what we must do in ours. Which means kingdom ministry must always be two things, contextual and compassionate. If, the king, if kingdom ministry always touches a community where it's hurting most, then what's the logical question for Renaissance Church today? Where is Harlem hurting most? 
But I think Harlem is hurting most in two ways. First is poverty, and the second is racial angst. Harlem has historically been a community filled with great pride and great poverty. Harlem is the cultural capital of black America, and almost every major movement for black empowerment and racial equality has passed through these streets. But Harlem is also a community that's rapidly changing. The average household income right now in Harlem is $21,000 a year, but the average rent for a one-bedroom is $2,400 a month. Now, there are a lot of factors driving that, that th those ridiculous numbers, those ridiculous extremes. But, but the main factor is something called gentrification. Now, that's probably a more academic term for gentrification, but my definition for gentrification is this. Gentrification is when money moves to the hood. That's what it is. Which means on the surface, it's a class problem, not a race problem. But the rapidness of gentrification has created racial angst in this community. For example, this young man in Harlem, he's about 24 years old, I've been building with. And I asked him, I said, born and raised here, I said, yo, I said, yo, bro, what you think about the changes happening in Harlem right now? And he said to me, Pastor K, wait, hold on, let me stop. You know you made it in Harlem when you got a nickname. <laughs> he was like, Pastor K, it doesn't bother me that white people are moving into the community. But that doesn't bother me. In fact, he said, I'm tired of seeing the same people every day. I'm tired of them. He said, do you know what bothers me? They're scared of us. He said, every day, I see the same people walk by, and these are my neighbors, and they won't even make eye contact with me. Now remember, gentrification is not a race issue. It's a class issue. But because of the traditional color of this community, because this community has traditionally been filled with people kissed by nature's son, there's, a, there's, now a, there's now a racial tension that's being created as that shifts so quickly. But listen, listen, Renaissance Church, most of the pain of gentrification, and I'm saying this as a traditional Harlemite, as someone from this community, I think most of the pain of gentrification really isn't caused by those moving in. I think it's caused by the generational poverty suffered by those who have been here forever. Let me give you an example. A New York City census done in central Harlem, which is where this church, Renaissance Church, is currently located, and where our church plant will be located, just found that one-third of the residents in this community live below the federal poverty line. Now, that, that got to boggle your mind if you just moved in here and you see how expensive everything is. But one-third of the people in this community, not, not you know, some faraway place, this place live below the federal poverty line. This reality came even more evident when I asked my homie what he thought about the new Whole Foods going up right down the block. I said, what do you think about that, bro? And he said, Pastor K, this community has always wanted healthy food choices, but Whole Foods are so expensive, we'll never eat there. Essentially, do you know what this young man was saying? Here's what he's saying. Positive changes are happening in my community, and they're not for me. Imagine how dehumanizing that must feel. But his story is just one of many similar stories I've come across as we've endeavored to plant the church in central Harlem. It's the angst of wondering if this new Harlem Renaissance, no pun intended, will be inclusive. Will the poor, the marginal, the formerly incarcerated,
incarcerated and the uneducated be included or will they be thrown away? But this is why I love Jesus, because Jesus doesn't just contextualize his mission. He pursues it with compassion. Look at your neighbor and say compassion. Don't look at me. I'm in a different neighborhood. Look to your other neighbor. Y'all looking at me, looking dead at me. Look to your other neighbor and say compassion. Jesus couples his mission with compassion. As Jesus leaves the synagogue, he hits the streets. And look at what Matthew says. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The Greek word used for compassion here means empathy. I like that. I like that. Because when Jesus saw the people's condition, he didn't feel guilt and he didn't feel pity. He felt empathy. The biggest difference between empathy and guilt is guilt focuses on me. Guilt focuses on how I feel about things that are going on. But empathy focuses on the person suffering. Jesus felt empathy for the crowds because they were hurting and helpless. They were sheep without a shepherd. They were thrown away by the establishment of his day. They were the people that nobody wanted. But let me tell you something today, Renaissance Church. Here's the beauty of God's kingdom. God's kingdom is based on a God that delights in building beautiful things out of what society has thrown away. Oh, God's masterful at building beauty out of the stuff that nobody wants. The stuff that nobody wants. Family, we can't do kingdom ministry today without learning the skill of empathy. We cannot. Brene Brown. Do y'all know Brene Brown? Brene Brown, the dynamic, powerful psychotherapist and empathy scholar, once said it this way. Empathy is feeling with people. Empathy is feeling with people. Renaissance. Jesus sends us out into our communities not to feel for people, but to feel with people. See, pity, see, 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 this is where pity is different than love. Because pity is feeling for someone. Pity says, I feel bad for you. But empathy says, I feel bad with you. That's a much more vulnerable place to be. And I know some of you are thinking, how do I get there? How do I do that? Well, here's the reality. You don't do it in your own strength. You need the gospel of God. See, the gospel isn't a story about divine sympathy for a broken and brutal world. The gospel is a story about divine empathy for a broken and brutal world. This is important because I know some of y'all are thinking, how do I suffer with people when I'm already suffering so much myself? How do I empower somebody when I feel weak every day? Well, here's how you do it. Let me tell you something today. You may have never gotten empathy from your your friends. You may have never gotten it from your family. And you definitely probably ain't getting it from your career. But there's a man named Jesus. There's a man named Jesus who looked at a crowd of people like you. A crowd of people like you. And his heart broke because he saw you harassed and helpless like sheep without shepherds. And Jesus' compassion for you took him to the cross. See, Jesus shows us today that God is not distant from our suffering. Not this God. You got this God twisted. This God came into the world as a fellow sufferer. This God didn't stand back while you cried your tears. This God cried the first tear. So what does that mean? That means Jesus 
hung on a cross between two thieves 2,000 years ago, not because he was a nice guy, not because he wanted to look out for you. He hung on that cross because he knew you were harassed and you were helpless and you didn't need help. You needed hope. And Jesus gives his life in your place and rises from the dead and looks at each and every one of us and says, I got you. I got you. Your career ain't got you. Your education ain't got you. Your boo ain't got you. Bay ain't got you. Your family ain't got you. Your paycheck ain't got you. I got you. I got you in a way that nothing else in this world ever can. Come with, come, come to me with your lament. Come to me with your longing. Come to me with your unmet expectations and experience my love. And then he says, now go out and give it to somebody else. See, we have hope today, not because Jesus has power. Power don't give you hope. There's plenty of people in this world with power that we don't have no hope in. That's another sermon. That's another sermon. Y'all trying to get me in trouble. I want to come back here. No, 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 no. We have hope today, not because Jesus has power, but because he used his power for us so that we can flourish. So the kingdom question for each and every one of us today is not do you have power. There's not a single human being on this earth that's powerless. That's dehumanizing. Don't ever call anybody powerless. Even the poor have power. There's not anybody made in God's image that doesn't have power. Nobody made in God's image is powerless or junk. The real question is not do you have power, but who's flourishing because you have power. That leads me to my third point, and I'm going to let y'all go ahead and get your bunch plans popping. Um, <laughs> This third point, and I'm out your way, is called the multiplication of the kingdom. Then, the text says, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. Jesus now turns to his disciples and conversely, this church. And he says to us today, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. What he's doing here is challenging us not to see ourselves as passive, as passive spectators in God's mission, but as active participants in God's mission. Jesus is telling all of us that God has a great harvest out there, but guess what? God doesn't have a great workforce. Now, here's the beauty of our king. The growth of God's kingdom is not predicated on who we are but on who he is. Because I know what some of y'all are thinking right now. I can't do this. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not religious enough. I'm not Christian enough. I can't do this. But, 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 but you know what that means? If that first point is true, that also means that God's not limited by your ability, but by your obedience. That's what that means. It ain't about you. See, before you put all the pressure on yourself to go out here and save the world, remember that Jesus, remember that there's a story in the Bible where Jesus feeds 5,000 people with a little boy's Lunchables. Right? Before we go out here and try to save the world, Jesus fed 5,000 with a little boy's Lunchables. In that particular story, though, here's what's interesting. Jesus turns to his disciples and he says to them, you feed the 5,000. And what happens? They are completely in over their heads. And what do they come back to Jesus with? With two fish and five loaves of bread. Now listen, I'm not a caterer in here. Maybe somebody in here is a caterer. 
Amen, God bless you. You might know a little bit more about this than I do. But, but here's what I know. Here's what I know. I know that two pieces of fish, five heroes, <laughs> two pieces of fish and five heroes is a pitiful attempt to feed 5,000 people. That's a pitiful attempt to feed 5,000. You can't feed five people with that, much less 5,000. But here's something free today, Renaissance Church. Take this one with you. This is free. This one is on me. Our God is masterful at taking pitiful human attempts of obedience and turning them into powerful acts of renewal. That's the God we're talking about today. See, Jesus is looking at Harlem and he's saying to Renaissance Church, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. There's more than 3,000 people, 300,000 people live in Harlem. So that means that even if Renaissance grows to be 10,000 people, we still haven't even put a dent in the needs in this community. That's why the Lord is calling us to plant the gathering. And that's why one of our most strategic and closest partners will be this church. See, we believe God's building a kingdom, not a castle. Which means that we believe that together we can get more accomplished than we can apart. I try to build my life on a kingdom principle, and I try to remind myself of it each and every day. And it's something that's applicable to your career, but it's definitely applicable to our work as God's people. Here's the principle. You'll be amazed at how much you can get accomplished if you don't care who gets the credit. Oh, take that into your personal life. Take that into your, into your career. But definitely, definitely take that into your vision of God's people. You'll be amazed at what God can do in your life if you just stop caring about who got the credit. Family, we want to see God lead a movement in Harlem of the church, the church, not the mayor, not the president, the church leading the charge for justice, unity, economic, and educational empowerment. Those are our problems. They're our problems. We have the hope of the kingdom. Those are our issues. We don't check those on a ballot. We can't check those off. Kingdom work ain't, nine, ain't no nine to five. And that's why our vision at the gathering is a Harlem. Check this out. This is our vision for our church plan. A Harlem where everyone is unified and dignified because justice, love, and mercy are present. Wait, wait, hold up. But your vision at Renaissance is it, it, not that different. Your vision at Renaissance is to see Harlem renewed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ with discipleship, community formation, and social justice. Do you see the connection? Both of these churches have explicitly stated in our vision that we do not exist for ourselves, but for Harlem. We exist for this community. That's what the kingdom is all about. It's about God's people in God's place living compassionately and contextually under God's rule. So Renaissance, the harvest is plentiful. Harlem is ready for a powerful move of the gospel, and this church is just a preview of what God wants to do here. But the laborers are few. So what should you do today? Well, Jesus gives us an answer right here in this text. You should pray earnestly. That's what you should do. 
You need to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into, Har- into Harlem and what your role might be in that. See, we're so accustomed to praying earnestly when our kids are acting up or our loved ones get sick or things get tight financially. And we should pray earnest prayers in those moments. But when was the last time you prayed earnestly about God's mission in Harlem? When was the last time you prayed earnestly about something bigger than yourself? See, God wants to enlist you. Yes, you. You with your busyness and your baggage. You that just moved into this community. You with your church hurt. You with your distrust of authority. You with your lack of education. You with your criminal record. You! for amazing people that can feed 5,000 all by themselves? We got it twisted. No, 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 no. God's looking for average people that's willing to offer the best that they have in faith that an amazing God can take it and meet the needs around them. <laughs> Kingdom growth and multiplication doesn't happen because we're We give ourselves way too much credit. Don't happen because we're amazing. Kingdom multiplication happens through the exercise of reimagining and reshaping the social and communal around the blood of Jesus. We, we don't grow by being homogenous. We grow by claiming, embracing, and unconditionally accepting those that are not like us. That's the kingdom of God. Kingdom multiplication happens when rejected outsiders become beloved insiders in our church. Kingdom multiplication happens where there's no more walls lifted up to divide us, but only a cross lifted up to unify us. And right after Jesus tells his disciples that the harvest is plentiful, but the labor is a few, Matthew 10.1 happens. And, this, and I'm going to close on this. It says, and he called to him, his 12 disciples, and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. Does that sound familiar? Didn't somebody just heal every disease and every affliction? Family, the same Jesus who healed every disease and every affliction in our text today, right after this, sends his church out to do the same. To do the same. And who, because I know what y'all thinking, oh, nah, yeah, 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 pastor, but that was, that was them, and they were holier than me, and, and they've been in church longer than me, and they, let me tell you a little bit about the 12 that he sent out. You ready? You want to know a little about this 12? Let me tell you about them. You, you want to know who they were? Okay, ready? Oh, yeah, I'm glad somebody asked over here. Okay. The 12 were a group of fishermen, a shiesty tax collector, a thief that would betray him, a political revolutionist. And two power-hungry mama's boys. I think Renaissance can do a little bit better than that. In other words, the church that gathered around Jesus was a group of people who couldn't even eat a meal together unless he was at the table with them. Ooh, Renaissance, our calling in Harlem is to create churches that transcend race, class, and gender, that transcend the things that divide us, Our calling in Harlem is to create communities where everybody can breathe. And we must bring the radical, subversive, liberating, and freedom-fighting kingdom of God down to touch Harlem where it's hurting most. Will you join me in this endeavor? Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, oh God, we are blown away, blown away by the truth that the faithfulness and fruitfulness of your kingdom and your work in this world is not predicated on who we are, but on who you are. God, God, we thank you that you don't go after people with the most ability. You go after the people that are obedient. Father, today, may we pray earnestly like we've never prayed before. May we not leave this church the way we came in. May we walk away from this place truly asking ourselves, what are you doing in Harlem and how can we touch this community with, with where it's hurting most? God, you've given each and every one of us power, power that we don't deserve, but power that you've called us to use for the flourishing of somebody else. God, give us clarity today on how we can do that and how we can partner with you in the movement that you're leading of many, many, many lost sons and daughters coming home in Harlem. We ask these things in the matchless and wonderful name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.